Hello, everyone. Happy Siren Sundays. What's splashing? It's your host, Lashanti Jeff, and you are now tuned in to Siren Sundays, Season 4, Episode 11. On this episode, our guest is Dr. Owen O'Shea, who is the Principal Researcher at the Center for Oceanographic Research and Education, also known as CORE, in North Eleuthera. Welcome, Dr. O'Shea. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to have you here. And I know um, a lot of my guests have been asking, like, what do you mean environmental spy? So we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that but very, very shortly. But can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about you know, your journey in conservation? Like what has gotten you um, to the career point that you're in right now? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Dr. Owen O'Shea, and uh, I'm the founder, CEO, and uh, chief scientist of the Center for Ocean Research and Education, um, which is four years old now. Um, how I got here is uh, an interesting story. I used to work in finance um, in, a, in a small town north of London in the late 90s, having been kicked out of university in 1998. Um, I used to wear <clears throat> a suit and drive a fast car uh, and be obsessed with sort of selling houses and selling people mortgages. And uh, a series of events led me to tra traveling, going backpacking. And during this trip, I learned to scuba dive and it completely changed my perspective on everything, on life, on on how I conducted myself on this planet, how I conducted myself with other people. And I felt that there was an entire world to explore beneath the waves. And yet as a human that had the capacity to, to learn and understand about the ocean and her creatures, uh, I felt compelled to do something about it. I almost felt um, ignorant uh, and ashamed that I had this opportunity um, or ability and uh, I didn't embrace it. So it was a chance encounter on a tiny island in Indonesia with an English dive instructor who taught me to dive. He took me out diving. That led to a passion for conservation and a passion for the, the creatures of the ocean. So after about two years of, of traveling around Australia and Southeast Asia, I ended up going back to England for a very short period of time. And during my younger days as a, as a, a financial advisor, I was successful enough in that I was able to buy a property. So I ended up borrowing a load of money using that property as collateral to fund uh, a trip back to Australia to, to start university. And I was 24 years old. And I went back to Australia to, to do my undergrad. I had to redo all my year 12 exams, my high school exams, math, chemistry, English. Um, and I just developed this passion and hunger. And I felt that all of my colleagues were younger than me. And, and you know, these were the people that were going to be competing with me for jobs at the end of the day. So I completely became absorbed and obsessed with this concept of being a marine biologist. And it was all initially to do with learning. I never wanted to be a marine biologist or I never wanted to run my own organization. I just wanted to learn. Um, and so I did my first degree and then the passion for the first postgraduate degree occurred. And then the rest is really, really history. And uh, four years ago, I founded the Center for Ocean Research and Education. And it's been just the best, most challenging four years my professional life and that's that's where we are today yeah, and bill definitely appreciated your mentorship 
<laughs> Thanks, Bill. Awesome. So the part that I've been dying to hear about, I know you have it on your LinkedIn profile. So I'm very interested to hear about the undercover field work you did infiltrating a plastics factory. Yeah, that was crazy fun. That was awesome. <laughs> so um, I, I finished my doctorate in 2012 um, in Western Australia. And Throughout my time in Australia, I've been closely associated with a non-profit foundation called the Tongaroa Blue Foundation, who were a marine debris, marine plastics, uh, source reduction, mitigation kind of approach to marine conservation foundation. And we used to do beach cleanups and I used to represent them on various other um, sort of public activities. So when I finished my PhD, I was in Western Australia and I was really struggling to find a job. Um, you know, there were postdocs available, there were consultancy jobs available to work in the natural resources sector in Western Australia, which is huge. Um, but nothing really struck me as, as something that had meaning and purpose that was tangible where I could get my hands dirty. My PhD was so hands-on, intense field work, working closely with large animals. So I went back to Tongaroa Blue and, you know, I said, you know, I finished my PhD. There has to be something I can do with my newly acquired skill set. Um, and they were um, just about to launch this um, series of investigations into the microplastics, the beads. Um, I think they're called something different in every country, but essentially every plastic item we have from sunglasses to earphone cases starts its life as a bead, a micro bead, which gets, you know, rendered down and then reformed into the shape that it's designed for purpose. Um, and there were a lot of plastic factories that were fabricating plastic um, for the construction industry or for, you know, any other type of industry where plastics required, which as everybody knows is it's so pervasive in almost everything. Um, so I flew to Sydney in New South Wales from Perth, Western Australia on a five hour flight in the same country. It's pretty crazy. And my task was to infiltrate factories and essentially document their, uh, sort of disposal practices, because remembering these things are tiny. So you might have a huge sack of these micro beads. And as you open them, you might have a cup of them that spills over the floor that, you know, you've got pallets and pallets, thousands, tens of thousands of these bags. So what's half a cup that you spill on the floor? Um, but obviously we know that these, because they're so small, they have the potential to go undetected, unnoticed, and all of a sudden they're in the waterways. Mm -hmm. So before I went to New South Wales, I was I was collecting information for Pongaroa Blue um, on the presence and absence um, of microplastics on beaches, urbanized waterways, um, ocean beaches that were close to, you know, urbanized areas, but also remote beaches. And I say presence, absence, that's actually incorrect. It was just presence because we never found a beach that didn't have them. So we knew that this was a real problem. But the main issue is, you know, you've got to change people's sort of the way they perceive plastic. It's all about education. So you have to go to the source and the source reduction plan was something that this this was the sort of preliminary pilot study for. So as you know, a recently um, 
graduated PhD student or PhD person. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. Um, I wore pretty scruffy clothes as a field <laughs> biologist, which worked to my advantage because I would walk into these factories with covert recording equipment, so audio and video. And I would say that I was an artist and I would ring ahead. I would identify an industrial estate that had plastic factories um, and I would call ahead and I would ask for an appointment. Um, and I said I was an artist and I was building sculptures <clears throat> out of microplastics and I was interested in their process and if I could come in and see. And every single factory always said, yes, just turn up whenever you want and ask for, you know, so-and-so, he's the manager. And uh, so I went into these factories and I covertly recorded their disposal practices. And it was absolutely horrifying because when I left the meeting, I had a pass, so I was free to walk around the sort of complex, the site. Um, and I was filming drains full of microplastics. I was filming waterways and, and wetlands that backed on to these industrial areas. Um, and you could see plastic just in vast quantities. I remember there was one site, um, it was a wetland, and I could see birds, I could hear frogs, I could see snakes and lizards. It was, you know, a diverse ecosystem. And there was a body of water and a small beach, and the beach was green, red, yellow, and I was looking at it and white and clear. And it took me a moment or two before I realized that it was just vast quantities of these microplastics, these beads. Wow. Um, so we collected all this information and we wrote a series of technical reports. And we went to state governments and we went to the factories, the people that own these factories, and we showed them what we found. And this work was responsible for one of the first ever, um, uh, it, it was like a, a drain um like we would have in our kitchen sink to prevent food matter from our dirty dishes going down the drain mm -hmm. it was like a mesh like a colander that would sit in these industrial drains that led directly to these waterways so at the end of a couple of days or a week you can go and pull out this mesh metal sieve essentially and take out all the plastics that have been accidentally spilt but what was most troubling was the sort of carefree attitude to it. You know, there was plastic everywhere. And, you know, we witnessed people sweeping them into the drains. And of course, now we know that, you know, these, um, these plastics have so many impacts on the environment and on biological systems. And um, it's the most, you know, pervasive threat, um, you know, right next to overfishing, I would say, that faces our global oceans. So that was kind of very sort of frontline um, sort of uh, conservation work, I would say. It was, uh, we, you know, we generated a bunch of papers and technical reports from that. It was very exciting. It was quite exhilarating. I never got caught. Um, I don't know what would have happened, you know, if I had a caught. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was incredibly rewarding. And it was a little bit, um, it was just, it was kind of, you know, it was a bit dishonest. I felt it was a bit risky, but I feel that the results generated from it were absolutely worthwhile. Yeah, that's exciting. And it's really sad to hear that that's not something that they had in practice before, you know, before you got there and had that technical paper. And it's just so much mm -hmm. negligence when you have such big corporations who really just don't care, you know, and it, it takes something like that to really kind of spark that action. 
Um, but that's really exciting. And I'm glad you never got caught because I definitely wondered, oh, like doing all of this, this sounds like this could really be a big um, risk, but glad you did it. Yeah. Glad you got some of the results. And clearly being an artist gets you a free pass <laughs> into places. Yeah, yeah I, I, I felt it was quite a non-confrontational um, disguise to have. If I'd have gone in there and said, hey, I'm a conservation, you know, conservationist, I'm here to to do this and do that. I think people can be quite defensive, but um, if you turn up a little bit aloof and you know, hey, I'm an artist, you know, and you're wearing the clothes that fit the the profile that you're trying to project, um, yeah, it worked really well. And to be honest with you, I remember, I remember pulling up at the first factory, thinking, you know, my God, I, what am I doing? Like, I've got no story. I haven't even thought this through. And uh, the artist thing came to me as I was walking from the rental car to the factory on the very first engagement. Um, and it worked. So that was it. I think I went to nine factories in the end, all over Sydney and the greater Sydney area. Um, and then back in Perth, Western Australia as well, we did the same the same protocol. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> so let's take your story and bring you now back to where you are right now in Eleuther and the Bahamas. So you said four years ago you founded what how did you get to founding this organization and what exactly do you guys work on so i came to the bahamas eight years ago initially i was you know when i was doing this work for pongaroa i'd also applied for a job to work as a research associate at the cape Luther institute um under a guy called dr ed brooks who i'm sure many people know and um ed gave me a chance you know to to come here an opportunity to um you know work with his team and become an island school teacher and it's kind of funny because when you do your phd you know when you hand it in or you go through that that sort of process of having it marked and then you get conferred you know one minute you're a student and then the next day you're a professional scientist and <laughs> all of a sudden you're let loose into the real world and you know postdocs are an amazing um idea to sort of continue that training in a uh, and an informed and, and structured, you know, way. Yeah. Um, but coming here to the Bahamas, I just kind of felt I was just thrown in at the deep end to, to being a professional scientist. So the Cape Luther Institute was really this, I would say, a training ground for me to learn how to communicate my science in a non-technical manner, learn how to communicate my science to, you know, primary school students from a local Bahamian school all the way through to visiting scientists. And I was there for four years um, and, um, you know, I, I, I taught, you know, thousands of, of students and, and groups and things like that. But what I felt I needed to do was I wanted to focus more on the Bahamian aspect of, of education. And while I was working a lot with Bahamians in my role at CEI, I just felt that there was something more that I wanted to do um, in the communities of North Eleuthera. So I sort of, <clears throat> I had a couple of ideas about what direction I could go in. Um, and it's, uh, I think we had four or five iterations of a business plan before we settled on, you know, just keep it simple. What is it we do best or what is it I do best? It's I teach and I, I'm, I do research. So um, we established the Center for Ocean Research and Education in 2017. Uh, we developed the website, we wrote the business plan, we applied for our US nonprofit status, that being the 501c3. And then on the 1st of September 2017, so just over four years ago, we went live and I was working from my um, 
um, partner's kitchen table. And, um, you know, the first week I was doing that, I got an email from the Smithsonian Institution. They'd heard about me and uh, they were setting up a two-year long-term seagrass monitoring project. Would I be interested? And this is the first week we had a website and, and, and passion and an idea. And then fast forward to March 2018, we acquired premises in Gregory Town. Um, the University of Tampa were our first visitors. I think we opened the center. Um, and two days later, we had scientists from Tampa that came in and then the Smithsonian were here. And to be honest with you, it, I don't even remember it. It just happened almost overnight. We exploded. Um, and before I knew it, we were granted our 501c3. We had a board of very um, talented uh, directors that come from a very broad you know, range of backgrounds from lawyers to scientists to community leaders. Um, and then we started developing our education programs for the community and applying for local grants through Life of Key Foundation, for example. Um, and it just happened. Grad students started turning up and you know, prior to the, the COVID of March 2020, when everything went quiet, mm, yeah. um, we were, you know, we were just working so hard. We had, uh, um, yeah, I mean, we've just, we've just celebrated four years. So in that four years, um, we've had, we've, we've delivered education to 1300 students, 85% of whom have been Bahamian. And that's been at zero cost to them or the community. We've published 12 papers from nine collaborations with international institutes from Italy, the Netherlands, the UK, uh, and the States. Um, and we've raised over a quarter of a million dollars in grant money and, and uh, donations from very forward-thinking, generous individuals. And it, it's been such a whirlwind. It's just the community responded to what it was we were doing. And I felt that we were offering something very unique in an island context in that we had sort of frontline conservation driven marine research with organizations like the Smithsonian Institution or the Florida International University. But when our visiting scientists came and we were working on these projects, we would incorporate local people from the community into that data collection process. So we had teams of young Bahamians that were serving as our interns and technicians and learning um, this immersive process of, you know, when you have uh, uh, a legislation that's passed or a national park that's been um, sort of, you know, denoted, how do you get to that point? And it starts with organizations like mine, where we develop a series of questions you or is that just on my end okay i think we're experiencing some technical difficulties um let's just hang out a bit just to see if we get owen back <laughs> and those of us those of you that are viewing, um, if you have any questions, feel free to pop them in um, to ask Dr. O'Shea, you know, what else he has done. He has a very interesting life. <laughs> hmm. 
Yeah, so we have lost him. He should be back soon. But for those of you who were wondering, once again, CORE is located in North Eleuthera, in Gregorytown specifically. And I actually stumbled across um, Owen when I was working at the Bahamas National Trust um, with the Sweetings Pond Project, which was also with Dr. Heather Mason-Jones from the University of Tampa. Yeah, we have Wi-Fi cuts, Eleuthera, Nassau, all the islands. <laughs> and we, we're back. Right. No worries, no worries. <laughs> So you were starting to tell us how um, you were getting the Bahamian youth involved in some of the processes for, you mentioned denoting protected areas and when researchers would come in, they would help with data collection. Yeah, absolutely. And we just became, you know, the community of Gregory Town is very small. Everybody knows everyone. And, you know, as soon as we just did a couple of programs, everyone started talking because you might have, you know, a young 13 year old who goes home, they tell their mum, their dad, their Grammy, their cousins, everything that they did today. And I would have, I started having parents come to my field station and say, look, you know, my daughter's at that awkward age, she's 15, she doesn't talk to me, but having spent a couple of days with you, she won't shut up about the marine environment and why we've got to stop, you know, you know, doing this or doing that. And I noticed that we were having an impact and, and I, I think we all make a difference every day, like when we interact with people. And I was just doing what it is I do. I wasn't sort of, you know, making an exception to anybody. I was just engaging in my research um, with young people from the community. And it just, it, it became, it just, like I said, it just exploded. We had so much momentum um, and then people hear about it and we had a strong social media presence so you know I would be contacted by other grad students and and all these other projects we had and all of a sudden you know my PhD was on stingrays but then all of a sudden I was working with octopus and seagrass and seahorses and um, it's been a huge learning experience for me as well and that's what I like to tell my students just because I'm standing in front of the classroom and I'm older and have, you know, a PhD, that doesn't mean I'm not learning. And I felt that we were all on a level playing field. Um, and it was just such a remarkable experience for me, but also for these young people. And I think we provided technical internships to about nine Bahamians that have gone on to pursue uh, higher education um, in, in marine or, or environmental science. So after a very short period of time, I noticed that what we were doing, we were hitting that right formula. Not only was I being challenged by developing and establishing an organization, but we were still publishing papers and we were engaging in these new and exciting collaborations, but we were also providing this educational element to Bahamians, which was everything that we set out to do because that was our mission statement, to build capacity in island communities in which we live through research, education and outreach. We wanna work with the community, for the community, but also in the community. And it was only after a couple of months when we developed the field station and then we started having the local primary school come in for a class every week. And all of a sudden, the dream had become a, a reality and it almost happened overnight. And I feel that the way that the community responded to us provided me with that continued motivation to keep going and here we are four weeks and 12 days later and we're, we're having this conversation it's amazing <laughs> yeah 
Definitely. And I, I was starting to say, you know, um, I heard about you guys many years ago when I was working at the Bahamas National Trust on that seahorse project. And they were like, yeah, you guys got to get Owen from CORE. And I'm like, in my, mm -hmm. I think the year was, it was probably 2018. I was like, who, what is CORE? Like, who is Owen from CORE? So it's so great to finally meet you and actually hear about some of the work you've been doing, because it really sounds like you got this gut feeling and you followed your passion and now it's you're reaping all of the benefits from it and i think it's so important to encourage people to do that like when you have this idea and this passion for something you have to really push through and do it and it's so great to hear that you're sparking this interest in bahamian use especially because i'm sure you've known or realized a lot of bahamians are scared of the water and mm -hmm. a lot of them can't swim and so when you build that interest and you you kind of like break down that fear you know you're getting more bahamians into the water which is amazing. So it's so great to hear about the work you're doing. And I am, I did have one of those questions. So about, you know, some of the work that you did in Sweetings Pond, which everyone who's heard about it, hears always about the seahorses, but you did some work with the octopus, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I had a graduate student from the University of Essex. He's now doing his PhD in Exeter, Duncan O'Brien. Nice. And he and I worked together in Honduras in 2017. And he was such a prodigy as a young undergraduate at Oxford at the time. He just had this um, tenacity for science. And um, he and I became good friends. So when CORE became established, um, he and I developed a research program in collaboration with one of my board members and, and collaborators and friends, Heather Mason Jones from the University of Tampa. Uh, yeah, um, and she, you know, you think Sweetings Pond, you think Heather. Um, and Heather was doing a bunch of genetics work, but we had a couple of ideas for projects there looking at the, the redfin needlefish. Um, and we put a couple of proposals together and we applied for a couple of grants um, and then sort of Duncan started applying for his grad school. So the octopus work was actually his graduate thesis. He did a master's of science um, through Essex and we've published two of those papers and we currently have a third one in review okay. that's been accepted subject to major revision. So we should hear about that fairly soon. Awesome. But the octopus, I mean, the whole thing about Sweetings Pond is very interesting because we think it's been in isolation for about 10,000 years in terms of the way the animals have evolved um, extrinsically to their marine counterparts. So the animals in there have developed a very atypical evolutionary trajectory, I guess. There's no real apex predators. I mean, there, there are some, um, but uh, the octopus. Yeah, exactly. The crabs and there's actually some other some some fin fish in there as well. But these animals have evolved in the largely in the absence of predators um, and also in relatively high densities. According to Heather, it's the largest density of, of this particular species of seahorse anywhere in the world. Um, and the octopus are the same. And this is an animal that traditionally has been considered social. So when you have an animal that has social attributes and is highly intelligent living in densities that exceed the natural population densities of the wider marine environment, what does that mean in terms of their sort of evolutionary ecological feedback? Right. So we designed a series of experiments to determine how this high density was impacting the social behavior of octopus. And some studies in the 80s were done on very similar um, programs. So we sort of wanted to sort of tune into that and offer a 30 year com comparative assessment, a sort of more contemporary understanding. How, how have things changed? You know, and 
things on the peripheral margin of Sweeting's Pond have changed. There's more urbanization, there's more farming. Yeah. So it was a really interesting study to have that comparison over 30 years, but also to ask and answer questions that challenge sort of long held paradigms about this social creature. Um, and Duncan was just, he was such a great student. And the fact that he did his master's um, and he has already published two papers from it, and we're working on this third paper. Um, it's just testament to, to his ability, but also the need for this kind of science. It's been recognized by our peers in the wider community that this is good science. And we hope that in collaboration with Heather's work on the seahorses, um, that we've contributed to, you know, identifying this place as being ecologically valuable and therefore of conservation significance. So. The octopus is one of my more prouder moments of the, the sort of evolution of core. And we also had tons of students that were terrified of the pond, local <laughs> students that came out and helped us, you know. Mm -hmm. And some of the stories they would tell us about, <laughs> yeah, like the kraken that lived there, it's incredible. So to get these young people in that pond collecting data with us was just, you know, it was almost the, um, it, it, it was just exactly what I foresaw core being in 2016 when I first came up with the idea. That's what I wanted. And they were great days, you know, when we, we, were, we were able to witness that for the first time. Yeah, I know I've heard um, almost every species that you find in there has very unique behaviors uncommon to what you'd find. It's, you know, obviously relatives doing in the wild. And I remember hearing Oh, you can hear the kraken sometimes at night in the full moon. And then later on, we heard actually that's because there are NASA groupers in there and they're like making noise and grunting, like with some of the snappers. And I'm like, this is wild. But I have heard that the octopus actually do behave a bit differently because I, the first time I saw an octopus in there, it was daytime. Everyone was like, oh, they're nocturnal. Like, well, I don't, you don't usually see octopus in the daytime. And it was like the, the craziest thing. Like, I almost felt like he was trying to knock the camera out, <laughs> out yeah. of his face. Yeah. And so, is that some? Is that one of the few things that you found different with the octopus there? I mean, it was, yeah. I was there a couple of months ago and I was there for an hour and I saw 11 octopus at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, but yeah, they, they have a completely different set of rules there as they are a lot more um, tolerant of each other. Um, and we did all these crazy experiments that mirrored those earlier experiments, but it really is just such an unusual place. Yeah. And, the, and, and it's not really that unique in terms of an Eleutheran or a Bahamian context. You know, it's called an Anchalean ecosystem. It's a, uh, a Greek word, I think, that describes it being close to the, the marine environment, but obviously it's a closed marine environment. Mm -hmm. But we have many of them on Eleuthera and they're so unexplored, uh, even blue holes to an extent, you know, it's, um, so to get the, the young people, you know, when people want to do research, you think sharks, rays, coral reefs, the glamorous stuff, the photogenic stuff, but taking young Bahamian kids into a murky pond that's shrouded in folklore and to have them respond in the way they did and for us to generate meaningful results from it, that they were a part of the data collection process. It's just amazing. That's so exciting. Um, I don't know, some of the other questions I have are things like, well, are there things that you're currently working on? And how can people who are maybe not students in North Eleuthera get involved with some of the work that you're doing? Are there opportunities to volunteer? Any upcoming things where people can, you know, help support and get involved with the work? 
Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, research, our research is kind of on a bit of a hiatus. We, uh, we've experienced the drop of, you know, international travel. Um, a lot of our grad students have had to postpone their trips here. So we've been focusing a lot on community education. We worked with Will Simmons in the Green School all of last semester. We had a 13-week programme or an 11-week programme with them. Um, a lot of the schools in Eleuthera now, in fact, I think all of the schools are back to virtual learning. So it's very difficult to sort of have our regular classes. Um, but right now, our focus is entirely on, um, is on education. Uh, but we still have vast amounts of data that have been collected, you know, from the pre-COVID era. Um, that we're working to write up and, and convert into manuscripts and, their, and then publish papers. Um, we're working on some other bits and pieces in terms of um, we've got a mangrove project um, that we're working with the local community, um, a Caribbean perspective on mangroves. This is, you know, a, a group of or a, a vast a, a network of ecosystems throughout the whole Caribbean region that are under threats that yet serve enormous ecological purpose. So we're trying to highlight some of these ecosystems through our education. So it's not really research as such, um, more um, taking young people into the mangroves and, uh, and, and conducting classes and things like that. But there's always scope for, for people to be involved, absolutely. Um, we've recently acquired some other edu community education grants. So we're recruiting at the moment to find um, students that are interested in spending some time with us. Uh, we've also been cataloguing uh, all the flora and fauna from some of the local waterways uh, in a project we've been running for a couple of years called Out of Sight, Out of Mind, which is essentially exploring <clears throat> the biodiversity of urbanised waterways. So in Gregory Town, we have Pittman Cove, and it's uh, the main transit point for fishermen coming in and out of the water it's also right in the middle of town people aggregate there the school's there there's a conch shack there the ch there's one of the churches is there and yet this body of water is used and uh, people see it every day but no one really sort of considers the sort of biological richness so we started through sort of standardized survey methods that we taught the young students um, we started cataloguing and documenting all the flora and fauna. And we've been doing that year after year after year to see how it changes. And it's quite remarkable. And I remember we would give community outreach presentations on a Sunday. So our students would give the presentation and all their families would come. We'd have 40 people in our field station. It was incredible. It was so hot and congested. Um, and these young people would stand up in front of their community and their family and explain, you know, the 42 species of fish or the 11 species of coral or the 20 species of invertebrate that we documented with photos and the methods in which we, you know, harvested those data, you know, we were able to collect those data. Um, and we've started doing it with other waterways with various gradients of, of human impact, human pressure. So. Is there a difference between the main waterway in Gregory Town versus somewhere that's a little bit further outside of the community? Um, so it's it's conducting meaningful research, but in a very localized educational setting. And I think the dream eventually would be to be sponsored by the BNT and sort of put up some signage, you know, and, and say, 
this is Pittman Cove, like a short narrative about the sort of historical stories and the cultural significance of this little bit of water. And then, you know, if you snorkel here or swim here, you might see this. I mean, we've seen tarpon in there. We've seen turtles. There were manatees in there recently. Um, and I'd love to write a little book about Pittman Cove and we call it out of sight, out of mind. And I think that one of the major successes of that particular project was the, the sort of demonstration for the young Bahamians that were working with us that when you put on a mask and you just look beneath the waves, that's what you find. And it opens up a whole new world to you and to them. Um, and that was a very transformative process for a lot of young people to witness the biological diversity and species richness in their own backyards, in their own community. Um, and that was so rewarding to, to watch the way that these uh, young students reacted to that. So these are some of the more education-based research projects we're running at the moment. And we're always looking for young people that are enthusiastic, but want to learn and get involved. So please get in yeah, touch with us. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I did pop your website in the uh, comments and we do have the Instagram page on the screen. So as we kind of close out, this has been such a great conversation. I see some wows <laughs> in the comments. What would you say um, is a lesson maybe that you've learned over your time and career that you'd maybe want to give as a final thought for viewers, whether they're people who are interested in getting in a similar field or you'd want to spark kind of a, you know, an interest in conserving the marine environment? Wow, that's a, that's a, a good question. Very philosophical. Um, yeah, I feel like I have a lot of responsibility now to, to get this right. <laughs> I, I think I think mainly speaking from my own experiences, you know, I, I was I was not, never engaged at school. I, I resented authority. I failed all my exams. I was apathetic to an academic career as an 18 year old. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just, I was very, um, just uh, had no interest in it. You know, my father had always encouraged me to watch, you know, nature programs and documentaries as a young man, which I enjoyed. I, I always appreciated the natural environment. I liked fishing and, um, snorkeling and so on but for me it really it really happened when i i went scuba diving for the first time which i was terrified to do and uh, i saw these animals and i just had to learn everything i could about it and it was the first time in my life that i've experienced something that has just resonated with such a vibration and impact i i, I felt that this was what i was supposed to do in this life and uh the, the, to answer your question, I would say it was just from that spark, it was sheer determination and hard work. And I tell my students that you can achieve academic goals through non-traditional pathways. If you keep that goal in mind and you work hard, you can achieve anything. And I remember my dad and my teachers used to say that to me. And it took me decades before I finally realized it. But <laughs> through sheer grit and hard work you can achieve your goals and we've seen that with with some of our students here from some of the communities of Eleuthera that have got a sort of an inkling of a passion there's like you know there's a little bit of a fire lit and then through their engagement with us we've managed to sort of fan those flames and encourage students to work hard and it's been successful so 
if you have a passion, don't be afraid to pursue it and don't be afraid to work hard because it's completely achievable. And I'm the perfect example of that because I failed all my exams at school. The teachers, I'm sure, were really happy that day that, you know, I turned 18 and they no longer had to teach me. Um, and uh, funnily enough, I keep in touch with a lot of those teachers now, just, uh, you know, in a, in a friendly way. But um, yeah. just work hard. Yeah, work hard. Awesome. Last question for you before I let you go. What is your favorite sea creature and why? And this is probably the hardest question. <laughs> it is. It is. It's the hardest question. Um, so I've been thinking about this and, you know, I think the obvious answer is stingrays or rays because, you know, my, my PhD focused on rays. But right. um, I, I think sometimes the clearest and most obvious answer is, is the best one. So the answer is rays. And, and the reason is that there are 635 species of ray uh, alive today that we know of. Okay. Um, and they all share a lot of common things like their body bond, typically. They're sort of what we call dorsoventrally compressed, which means they're flat. Um, some live on the seafloor, some live in the middle of the water column, some live at the surface, um, some filter feed on plankton, some, you know, eat the invertebrates that live in the sand. So they all kind of do something similar, yet in the process of evolution, there's been 635 occasions where the environment, where nature thought, hang on a minute, we need another stingray. We need another ray. Yeah. And through the process of speciation and through the process of evolution, nature has deemed that we need this amount of animals, uh, or sorry, this amount of species. And a lot of the work I focused on in my PhD was trying to understand how animals that superficially do the same thing in the same ecosystem can coexist without competition. Um, and we're answering these questions every day. And it's a fascinating element of my research over the years in that uh, they obviously do. And I'm trying to understand those mechanisms. And I just think for an animal that is ancient, it's a 350 million year old creature that has diversified over 600 times to fulfill a very specific ecological niche there's a, there's a requirement for this particular species and of course how many species evolved and then became extinct that we don't even know about so when we say 635 species that's you know alive today that we know about that figure over evolutionary history is going to be a lot higher so i'm just fascinated by an animal that looks superficially similar in its whole group yet still performs such an important function that the environment has deemed that it's essential for function and service to our marine ecosystems. Yeah, that's wild because I've never, I know of stingrays, but I obviously just know of oh, the southern stingray, the ones that I see commonly, but I've never heard of the stingrays that actually do kind of stay more on the surface of the water. So that's really interesting. You're going to have me Googling now after this show, looking at those different species, but so fascinating. Yeah, there's a crazy one found in the Mediterranean Sea. It's called the Pelagic Stingray. It has a beautiful uh, scientific name, uh, Terraplatytrigon violacea. 
and it's a stingray that looks like a stingray and it is a true stingray mm -hmm. but it's a pelagic stingray it's called the pelagic stingray and they're often caught as bycatch in tuna fisheries so this is an animal that has the body plan of a demersal a, a seafloor living animal yeah. but it just happens to be pelagic and to my knowledge it's the only one of its kind so something happened where this animal was like okay i need to start swimming um <laughs> <laughs> and it did and it's been successful so I have a book behind me that describes every single one of these rays and when I want to nerd out I sit here and I and I look at all these rays you know the freshwater rays of South America or the skates of Newfoundland you know so they're an amazing group of animals and we shouldn't be scared of them right definitely oh man thank you so much for taking the time out to do this episode with me this has definitely been an enlightening one definitely looking forward to one day getting down to the fuel station and actually seeing it and checking some of this stuff out. Thanks to all our viewers for riding this wave with us. And I hope to see you again next time on Siren Sundays. Always yours, Ashanti the Siren. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Ashanti. It's been a pleasure. Anytime.